0: listening to another edition of History Geek.
1: Hello, welcome
0: to Tony Blair's second and third terms, 2001 to 2007. Um, We'll take these together because his third parliamentary term, 2005 onwards, was quite short, just two years, as Blair retired from being Prime Minister in 2007. So, second and third parliamentary terms, next year period. Now, there's the election result of 2001. Um, another big victory like uh, the previous one in 1997 Um, relatively low turnout quite a low turnout by post-war standards only 59% compared to the 71% turnout in 1997 a lot of that is to do with Conservative voters staying home um, just thinking that there was no point in them voting because Blair's victory was uh, very much assured Um, and you can see again the, the Labour Party being quite flattered by the result, concentrated vote into the cities, meaning they get 62% of the parliamentary seats off a of 40% vote share. So 40% actually not not massively high. Um, you know, lots of Thatcher's victories were sort of above that, 43% and things like that. So 40% not hugely high. A lot of that is to do with votes for the Liberal Democrats, um, 18% for them. A lot of people, I suppose, feeling that it was safe to vote Liberal Democrat, knowing that it would not result in a Conservative government or as it may previously have done. But another good victory for Blair. And in this uh, in this parliamentary term, 2001 to 2005, Blair and Brown were able to be a lot more um, sort of left-wing than they'd been previously. In Blair's first term, they stuck very much to Conservative Party spending plans. They actually ran a budgetary surplus for four years in a row, which is very unusual um, for post-war governments. Most governments run a deficit um, they had that surplus and there were not hugely big increases in spending. From 2001 onwards though they felt they had a renewed mandate. People had decided to re-elect the Labour government. The focus of that first Blair term is very much about re-election. Trying to keep things nice and sort of normal, nice and safe so people felt they could trust the Labour Party. It worked, they got re-elected. And so from 2002 forward Um, We see Gordon Brown being much more perhaps the Chancellor he wanted to be in 1997. Taxes went up slightly to pay for better public services. And we have this record increase in NHS spending, a 43% rise in NHS spending over the period of that Parliament. Now, that doesn't actually bring NHS spending up to uh, to be enormous. It only brought it up to really be the EU average. So in the 90s, Um, and the 80s, health spending in Britain had been low by European standards. So although that that rise sounds enormous at 40 billion pounds, 43%, it only brought Britain into line with other countries like France and Germany. Blair was very keen on targets and he was very keen that the money spent should show its value. And so there's lots of statistics kept and two very impressive ones. The death rate fell by 17%. And the infant death rate halved. Two very impressive stats to show that this extra money really was working. You can see um, Blair and Brown's increases in healthcare spending. This is the average annual rate of growth, um, much, much higher than the long run average and much higher than the previous Thatcher and major Conservative governments. You can see how sharply it fell after that, after the 2008 financial crash and then the austerity measures of Cameron's government. Um, where healthcare spending increases were extremely low. Uh, but Blair and Brown, six percent average annual growth rate in healthcare spending, way above the, the average of just under four. Now Blair was very big on social inclusion. Um, he kind of he tried to, to play down those old Labour ideas of class warfare. He didn't like to talk about class. He famously said we're all middle class now. is a slightly meaningless phrase but he was trying to play down this idea of sort of working class labour party big working class unions fighting against the establishment Um, Blair wanted more social inclusion so he introduced laws that recognized homosexual and gender rights Um, for example the age of consent for homosexuals and heterosexuals was brought in line to be the same at 16 whereas it had been 21 for homosexuals police were reformed trying to uh, sort of respond to the inquiries that said that the um, Metropolitan Police were institutionally racist and things like that, tried to increase the amount of ethnic minority recruitment, um, particularly in the Metropolitan Police. Unfortunately, not a huge amount of progress was made there. Um, Trade union rights, which had come under attack for the last 20 years, really, 30 years, if you go back to the 1971 Industrial Relations Act, those rights were confirmed, although union membership by this stage much much lower than it had been a lot of social change in this period the population rose obviously um, from 1971 to 2006 an extra 5 million Um, Not, I mean not hugely surprising populations will grow unless you have a massive drought or famine or something Um, but what's more notable is over this time period we're looking at the number of pensioners people aged over 65 doubled Now that's significant because it means there's a lot more retired people who are no longer working and paying tax, they are taking money in state pensions, um, and they're also uh, a huge burden in terms of health care costs and social care, nursing homes and so on. So you have an increasingly large elderly population with a relatively smaller working population paying taxes to fund their care. There's Big moves forward in terms of female equality, certainly uh, sort of at the top, if you like, in terms of government. Famously in 1997, there were more than 100 female MPs for the first time, um, for the first time dubbed rather patronisingly Blair's Babes by the tabloid press. Um, but it did represent a significant step forward um, after actually the number of female MPs had been in decline uh, in the 80s um, and had risen slightly again in the 90s and really received a boost in 1997. Now, although in the 90s, the overall unemployment rate wasn't massively high compared to what it'd been in the early 90s or the 80s, youth unemployment remained a problem. Um, young people leaving education, perhaps without really very good qualifications um, to their name um, and finding it difficult to secure work. Now, Blair introduced something called the New Deal. Um, which sought to find work for young people and retrain them if necessary. And it succeeded in reducing youth unemployment by 40% in its first year. It was quite an extraordinary success rate. In 2004, um, the EU enlarged. You can see it on the map there. um, Those sort of pea green colours, that former Eastern European countries, former uh, communist countries rather, um, joined Europe, joined the EU. most European countries, Germany, France, Italy, etc, chose to introduce um, a sort of delay to to mean that Eastern European citizens could not move and work in Western European countries um, for a few years. However, in Britain, freedom of movement, one of the sort of EU ideas, was introduced straight away. Um, And by 2006, one million Polish people had moved to the UK. So the very sort of sudden movement of people. Most of them young men, typically looking for work. And indeed, you know, all the economic stats show us the huge benefits of immigration. Very much more likely to be in work. Very unlikely to claim benefits or need healthcare. You know, very, very good at, um, at countering that problem of an ageing population. Young, employable, skilled, all the things that you want in workers, really. Typically earn some money here and some return home, some stayed. Um, but you know, certainly caused some tension in some areas and this level of immigration is one of the factors which I suppose led people to vote to leave the European Union um, when the referendum was held under Prime Minister David Cameron. Um, immigration though was vital to solve the UK's ageing population problem um, but was controversial. The UK remained the largest exporter of people across Europe though. The the total number of Britons living abroad within the EU is higher than any other country, Um, so it is rather two-faced for Britain to complain about uh, economically valuable immigration into its country when actually a lot of uh, British emigration is not economically valuable, it's sort of pensioners moving to the south of Spain and so on. So on to the foreign policy of Tony Blair. Now, this is his most controversial area. His foreign policy up to 2001 wasn't especially controversial. Interventions in the Balkans um, sort of tied in with what John Major had done in 1995 and was sort of consistent with the sort of long run policies of, of um, British foreign interventions and diplomacy. From 2001 onwards, though, things um, take a bit of a turn. Now, the attacks of September 11th in 2001 um, changed the world. They changed the way that America thought about foreign policy and they changed um, Britain's outlook as well. And after 9-11, America, the UK and a very broad coalition of countries invaded Afghanistan. Their aims were to dismantle Al-Qaeda, which is the terrorist organisation which had uh, organised the 9-11 attacks, um, and also to get rid of the Taliban government, which supported Al-Qaeda and allowed it to use uh, uh, Afghanistan as a base for its terrorist organisations. Now, as often the case with these things, those sort of military operations of the Taliban government was very quickly toppled. Um, in the sense that the, the American army was was huge, very well equipped. The British army was well trained and uh, effective at what it was doing. And so the objective of sort of taking the capital city of, of Kabul and toppling the government was accomplished pretty quickly. What then remained a problem, though, is the countryside, particularly the mountains, um, the Torah Torah mountain range. Um, very difficult to sort of overcome, very difficult to sort of root out your enemy um, and a long running sort of counterinsurgency guerrilla war uh, carried on Um, in sort of an echo of the Vietnam War or indeed the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Afghanistan is very difficult terrain, easy for people to go and hide, um, and it can be very difficult to root them out. So a quick toppling of the government, but then a very long running campaign thereafter. Now, following on from this, attention turned towards Iraq. Now, Iraq had nothing to do with the 9 11 attacks, but there was a feeling after 9 11 um, that George Bush characterized uh, as being a war on terror, and he identified a so called axis of evil. Countries that he felt were broadly enemies of America and ought to be dealt with, and dealt with in an upfront confrontational way rather than the diplomacy that maybe had been favored previously. There was a feeling that Iraq was the most dangerous of these so-called Axis of Evil countries, and in September 2002, Blair presented a Joint Intelligence Committee dossier, so a, a selection of evidence, a document containing evidence from MI5, from MI6, looking at Iraq's so-called weapons of mass destruction (WMD), and in it was a famous claim that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction that would be ready to use in 45 minutes and could be directed against um, British interest, Western interest, maybe used to attack Israel and so on. Now, this became known as the dodgy dossier because there were suggestions from the start um, and allegations uh, made on BBC's uh, flagship news current affairs programme, the Today programme, that these claims had been, in the phrase of the time, sexed up, that the intelligence reports that were full of doubts and ifs, buts and maybes and obfuscation were replaced with certainties. So where the original MI6 report said it is possible that perhaps Saddam Hussein may have chemical weapons, possibly in the future, that was sexed up to say he has got them and he can use them. Now there was later an inquiry into this, that uh, the Chilcot inquiry, that was quite critical of the government and suggested not so much that they had fabricated, um, but they that they had used in temperate language, I suppose, and did not present things as clearly as they might have done. Now, despite the controversies around Blair's foreign policy interventions, and they were extremely controversial, a million people marched in London against the Iraq invasion, um, and, and certainly um, a great swathe of um, Labour Party supporters were turned off Blair by this invasion. Um, he was still able to win the 2005 election. Um, it was a real wake up call. There. You can see the Conservatives coming back strongly only three percentage points behind and Labour's majority was cut from uh, 160 down to just 66. And 35.2% was the lowest percentage share of a vote of any majority government in UK electoral history. They are really helped by the strong showing of the Liberal Democrats, um, 22% of the vote. So really, just three percentage points ahead of the Conservatives, Labour should have had a very, very slim majority, but still had a very workable one of 66 uh, 66 seats. Um, And you can see in the parliamentary seats, the, the Labour share still sort of grossly exaggerated compared to the percentage of seats that they had. And there's one thing that Blair did throughout his three election victories he was a very, very good engineering, uh, sorry, a very good electioneering um, organiser. And They could um, win the right seats. They targeted the right seats. They got the marginals. They got the job done where it needed to be done. They knew that it, winning the election is more about the overall percentage. It's about getting the right seats. And he was able to do that very effectively. So let's look at Blair and Europe, another area of his foreign policy. Um, controversial I think it's fair to say Um, Blair was very much pro-European the most pro-European Prime Minister probably since Edward Heath Um, John Major had been pro-European on sort of economic things less so on the social stuff Blair genuinely genuinely believed in the whole project and to symbolize that in 1997 the UK stopped opting out of the EU employment and social policy stuff that Um, that John Major had got an opt-out of in the Maastricht Treaty, Um, and in 98 the UK stopped objecting to a European defence policy. So they really want to integrate, they don't want sort of British exceptionalism anymore, He did not want uh, Britain to have all these kind of caveats um, to to their their agreements with Europe. One thing Blair did object to though was the common agricultural policy, this system of farm subsidies, um, which France benefited from hugely and received over a fifth of all the cap money, the UK, with a much smaller agricultural sector, got just 9%. Blair did not really succeed in getting very much reform in this area, um, and he was never likely to. It was a bit of a strategic mistake in some ways for him to raise it as an issue, um, because he was then seemed to to have sort of failed to get reform in this area. Now, under Blair's time as Prime Minister, there's this um, historic expansion of the EU where 123 million more people were added to the EU's population as all these former Eastern Bloc countries former communist countries were all added um, to the EU taking its borders right up to Turkey and to the Russian steppe of Ukraine and, and Belarus So, a huge expansion and as you can see in the data in the top right, um, this actually resulted in a sharp fall in the GDP per person as an average. Now, it's meaningless essentially. I mean, it didn't change the GDP per person in the UK or France or Germany, or whatever, but as an average, EU citizens were now poorer because the Eastern Bloc was much poorer than the West. Um, so it dragged that average down. But the idea of it was to uh, improve Living conditions, living standards, and prosperity for all. And certainly in those eastern countries, it has done enormous good. Now, as part of this expansion, the EU felt that it needed to change the way that its laws worked and the decisions were made. Um, when it had just been six countries, decisions could be arrived at relatively easily. You just have sort of six prime ministers or presidents sitting around a table and they could sort of discuss things. With a much larger EU of eventually 27 nations 28 nations um, they needed something different and so in October 2004 an EU Constitution was written and this was controversial because a Constitution is something that normally a country has um, and so the language sort of provoked anger amongst sort of Eurosceptics in Britain and Blair promised that there would be a referendum not on European membership but on whether we wanted to accept this Constitution However, as, as the timing went, referenda were held in France and Denmark before the one scheduled in Britain. And so the e, uh, the, the UK referendum um, was abandoned um, because it was felt it rather pointless. Two countries having rejected it, it was rather pointless. Britain then saying, yes, we do want it or no, we don't, um, because that would be academic anyway. And now that was controversial for some. Some sort of Eurosceptics wanted the Uh, chance to voice their opinion. They wanted a negative vote in Britain. uh, Blair wanted to avoid that. What the EU then did was, again, controversial. This EU constitution was essentially just changed into a treaty. Very little about it was altered. And it was signed uh, as the Lisbon Treaty, um, where because it no longer had this word constitution, it wasn't seen as something that had to be voted on and was just agreed by the leaders of the EU. So in summary, here's an example conclusion um, for Blair's uh, foreign policy. Tony Blair's foreign policy was often weak and he failed to lead other nations, preferring instead to follow. In regards to 2003 Iraq invasion, he failed to secure European support or a UN resolution, the latter leading many experts to question the legality of the war, damaging his and Britain's reputation. Although he appeared to be decisive in Sierra Leone, the change of mission was credited to the army commander rather than Blair, which suggests that Blair was personally not strong enough to take responsibility of the mission to support the government of Sierra Leone and that the intervention was not of Blair's making, again showing that Blair was not a tiger in foreign policy. Europe was probably Blair's most poodle-like moment, as he failed to deliver on the promises he had made whilst giving away concessions and increasing the UK's monetary contribution in order to appear part of Europe. Therefore tony blair was incredibly weak in regard to foreign policy failing to secure the interests of britain whilst carving into the policies caving into the policies of other leaders now that's just an example conclusion you could also write one uh, very much sort of arguing against that um, you could point out that blair's ideas of intervention were very clear they were set out in in uh, the late 90s in the chicago speech even before 9 11 had happened those interventions in iraq and afghanistan should not have been a surprise And that in Europe, he went from Britain's position, which had been one foot in, one foot out, to being a proper and committed member of Europe. In many ways, Blair's foreign policy was very decisive, very clear, and he knew what his objectives were, Um, but it remained very controversial. Now, just to summarise the successes and failures. Huge number of successes for Tony Blair in office from 1997 to 2007. Children left out of poverty, poverty minimum wage introduced, um, NHS got more funding, WHO World Health Organization said UK mental health was the best in Europe, more apprenticeships and educational maintenance allowance, people got 20 pounds a week to go to college, life expectancy went up, death rate fell, better nursery education, better relations with the EU, budgetary surplus, economic prudence, crime went down, unemployment went down, better gay rights improvements in higher education standards, independence of the Bank of England. On the failure side, he didn't really do anything to reduce the gap between rich and poor. Um, the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan were seen as UK being subservient to the USA. No massive change there, though, if you think back to British foreign policy from the war onwards, that's always been the case. So not necessarily something we should uniquely criticise Blair for. Didn't do enough to re-regulate banking after Thatcher had deregulated banking leading to the crash of 2008. Um, Sold off gold reserves at a low price, although you'd have to have a lot of foresight to know that gold was going to rise because of the uh, increase in mobile phones. Didn't stop tax evasion, didn't do much of climate change or obesity, over complex legislation and reforms, more money spent on the EU, excessive spending perhaps, um, the sort of argument I suppose on the right of politics that they spent too much money, failure to address immigration and the social concerns that it raised, Internal disputes, Blair versus Brown, some curbs on civil liberty. Britain became the CCTV capital of the world. We've got more CCTV cameras per head of the population than anywhere else in Europe. Um, anti-social behaviour orders um, were controversial. These kind of court orders introduced to stop troublesome youths causing trouble in public spaces. Um, accused by those on the left of sucking up to business, not doing enough to sort of stop fat cat pay and so on. Introduced detention without trial for terrorist suspects. Which is not very sort of democratic or or uh, judicial um quite no electoral turnouts so the sort of public engagement in politics was not particularly good in blair's era and a frenzy of changes who sometimes accused of kind of policy diarrhea um, and a lack of uh, sort of devotion and attention span to things quickly flitting from one thing to the other overall Blair indubitably inherited benevolent conditions in the UK's founder secular end of century, with a growing economy, large parliamentary majority and a public mood in favour of change after 18 years of Tory rule. However, the headwind should not be underestimated either. The world faced a financial crisis in 1998 that nearly sank the Russian economy and Blair had half a century of Labour's political failure weighing on his shoulders. Yes, Blair was too preoccupied with securing a second term. But this is entirely understandable given given Labour's electoral history, especially post 1970. Despite these difficulties, Blair was able to sustain economic growth, revive Britain's damaged public services and ensure that the British people felt the benefits of growth by introducing a minimum wage and tax credits. Ostensibly, Blair was sailing in calm waters but he avoided the potential icebergs to set a clear path to a sea of tranquillity.